Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would um, just glorify yourself now as we turn to it, as we study what you have to say for us. I pray that you would uh, just draw us closer to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So Wednesday nights this year, we're going through the, uh, the epistles written to the churches uh, in the New Testament. And so we're going to cover, we're in Romans right now, we'll be in First and Second Corinthians next. We're basically going to work our way through. And they're a special portion of the scripture because they're written specifically to the church, to believers in Jesus Christ who are on earth between when he ascended into heaven and when he's coming back again. And so there's a lot of specific application for us in these books. And so we're trying to do it basically all of those epistles in one year. And so as a result, we're moving at a, at a pretty good clip. Um, so in Romans, we're covering a unique book because we're looking at uh, a book that's unlike anything Paul ever wrote in any of his other letters. Because Paul, as he would travel around and spread the gospel, he would plant churches, he would, he'd meet people as part of just being a guy who's traveling around. And um, the book of Romans is different, though, because Paul's writing into a church that he hadn't started. Uh, he doesn't know the people there personally. And so there's a little more of just a, um, a kind of a, a freedom on Paul's end. He doesn't have to just address a problem or a crisis or say, hey, here's, what, here's how you fix what's wrong with the church right now in your situation. He's able to say, you know what, let's discuss for a little bit Jesus Christ. Let's talk about the gospel and what does that mean? And what is it when we call ourselves a Christian? What does that entail? What does that look like? And that's what the book of Romans is. And uh, we talked about, you know, Romans can sort of divide into four big chunks. There's really four big ideas that Paul's going to unpack in Romans. And the first one is uh, chapters one through five. He's going to look at, if you think of it as kind of a city, you can think of it as the first building you come to as a courthouse. And Paul's going to look at it with us and say, okay, what's the, what's the verdict of our lives? And the verdict is we're all guilty. We're all sinners before God. Chapters 6, 7, and 8, after he explains that we're all guilty and that our only hope for salvation is in Jesus Christ, he then takes us to this next idea, which is, okay, but we can still have power in our walk with the Lord. We still have power to attain righteousness, power to, to walk according to the will of God. And it's not by our efforts any more than salvation is by our efforts. Right? He's, gonna, he's very clear, hey, look, you are not capable of saving yourselves. You're also not capable of walking in holiness by yourselves. Everything about a victorious Christian life is going to be summed up in what God is doing. And in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he's going to pause, not even pause, he's going to sort of address a question that might be raised in the minds of his listeners, and that is going to be, well, what about the Jewish people? And are we talking about like, a new gospel, and is this, is this different than what the Jewish people believed, and then how so, and what does that leave them with? And then uh, chapters 12 through the end of the book, he's going to address, here's how the church should function. And so tonight, we're going to go through chapters 9, 10, and 11. We're going to address what should be the Christian approach to the, the situation of the Jewish people. And just to be completely uh, fair, straight up, if you've missed the last several teachings on Romans, or if you are just kind of unfamiliar with Romans as a book uh, on the whole, tonight's going to probably be a little bit rough, because uh, we're going to cover some, some kind of some big thoughts. And the challenge with Romans 9, 10, and 11 is uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a hard passage of scripture to teach, because what Paul's going to do is he's going to 
run with basically one basic idea. He's going to ask one basic question, and that is, uh, basically, has God just turned off his, you know, his promise for the Jewish people? And so he's asking really one basic question that has a very basic answer. But along the way, he drops in a couple side references that people can really zero in on and, uh, and get kind of weird about, actually excessively weird about. And so to teach Romans 9, 10, 11, you really have to kind of go through it. I think the best way to do it is go through it in a big chunk all at once and say, okay, here's the overall theme. And then while we're at it, we're going to pause and address a couple areas where people tend to get sidelined. And so I enjoyed, um, I was talking, so I'm, you know, I'm leaving on Saturday. I'll be gone for a month in Thailand. And so I was talking with dad, comparing notes on, uh, you know, what weeks I'll be gone and what, what passages I'll be at. And he's like, okay, so, you know, this is a few weeks ago. So next week you're in five and six and then seven and eight. And then the next Wednesday, you got nine, 10, 11. I said, yes. And I could just hear the joy in his voice. Like, Yes, I can dump this on Nate. Um, and so that's, that's what he meant anyways. Uh, so what we're going to do, we're going to cover three chapters. It's quite a bit of material, and, but I want us to get through it all, and I want us to catch the whole thing. So we're going to read all of chapter 9 and then go back and explain it a little bit. We're going to read all of chapter 10, go back, all of chapter 11. And I think it will, so I'm just going to kind of give you that heads up if you're thinking, wow, this is a long chunk. It is a long chunk. You are correct, but I think it's going to be worthwhile. So, but just before we dive in, okay, we got to keep looking back to what are the first eight chapters we've been talking about. What if, because this whole book is about what does it mean to be a Christian? And so specifically where Paul's going, Paul's a teacher, and Paul, as he's teaching, is trying to anticipate a question that's coming and say, okay, I want to address this. So in chapter three of Romans, verse 21, You don't have to flip there, I'll read it. He says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in in Jesus Christ. The whole first half of this book of Romans has been all about, hey, listen, you can be made righteous not through the law, not through what you do, not through your efforts, not through keeping rules. You can be made righteous by faith in God. And it has nothing to do with your efforts. And so he's anticipating, then the question is, well, what about the Old Testament? What about the Jewish people? What about all those rules and all those sacrifices and all those ceremonies that they had to keep? Are those just now, uh, are they all worthless? Does that mean that the, that the words that God wrote down are now just like, they're, they're, are they trash? What do we do with them? And what do we do with the Jewish people? Is, is, it, do, is there one path of salvation for Jewish people? Uh, who, the people who were given the law? And is there another path? people who aren't Jewish. And so Paul's trying to anticipate this, okay? And so he's been talking about we're saved apart from the law. We are not going to be saved by keeping the law. And then in chapter 8, he's talking about we have righteousness through the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And he says, nothing can separate us from the love which is in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 9, verse 1, here we go. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. 
Verse 6, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise, are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Verse 25. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, Unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Amorah. Verse 30, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Piece of cake. So, moving on to chapter 10. No. Uh, so here's what we've got. Basically, Paul's going to give us three chapters. And in chapter 9, he's going to address Israel's past election. The fact that God chose Israel in the past. In chapter 10, he's going to address their current rejection of Christ. And in chapter 11, he's going to address their future restoration. So he's giving us a look as he's talking about, as he's anticipating our question, if we're saved by faith and not by the law, then what about the Jewish people? He's going to address the past, the present, and the future of the Jewish people. So chapter 9 is about their past. It's about the fact that God chose them as a people. So there's a couple things we need to look at this. Um, basically, verse 10, he says, not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So Paul's making a point here. 
And if, in order to understand this, we're going to have to go back to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we're given the story of Abraham and basically God called him and separated him. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and God basically separated Isaac and called him. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. God separated Jacob and called him. And from Jacob's line came the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he's describing here when Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was pregnant. And she was pregnant with twins. And the Lord told her, there's, there's two nations at war in your belly. And the older one's going to serve the younger. And so Paul's making a point here. He's describing God choosing Israel. And his point is, this is before they were born. This is not because Israel kept the law. Israel was never righteous because they kept the law. There was never uh, one law of salvation for Israel and one law of salvation for us. The reality is, Israel was still under grace. They still needed the grace of God. And he's making a point here <clears throat> that Israel was chosen, that the nation was chosen and set apart before the nation ever had the, even the, the time or, or just the life and the vitality to make a choice. He's saying, look, I, I'm choosing to go this way. And then even, we said, that, you know, there's parts that get really, people get tripped up on. As it is written, verse 13, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. Now, if you read that, you could say, uh, wow, so God just loves some people and hates some people. And, you know, gee, hope you're on the right side. But if you're not, <laughs> tough luck. Uh, that's what it looks like. Okay, but let's, we always interpret scripture with scripture, right? And so what is this? This is a quote. Uh, depending on how your Bible's formatted, you should have a little note at the bottom of your Bible that, that says Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And so if we flip over to Malachi, we see that a couple important things. One, that the Lord is describing the nations that come from them. Jacob representing Israel and Esau representing the Edomites. And specifically also, if we look in the book of Malachi, where this quote is coming from, the Hebrew word there that's translated hate is really passed over. And it's a little bit of a cultural breakdown because for us, hate means what we define in English as hate, okay? But in the, in the Israeli context there, what it means is basically God is looking at Jacob and Esau. He's saying, I'm seeing two nations coming from this. I'm gonna go with this one. It's not, hey, you know what? This one is just too bad, so sad. They have no opportunity. They have no choice. It's, I wanna channel my grace through a family line. I'm gonna go this way. And so this is not this idea that God just appoints some people to be saved and appoints some people to go to hell and too bad, so sad. It's this idea that God is working. That even Israel being called is not based on what they do. It's based on the fact that God has a plan. It's based on the fact that God is in control. He goes on in verse 14. Well, kind of verse 14 through 24, he's going to carry an idea. But starting in verse 19... You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does the potter have power over the clay? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So here, he's covering kind of the same idea. He's, remember, we're addressing in chapter 9, Israel's being chosen by God. Their past election, when God said, I'm going to work through this nation. And so he's talking about, you know, 
In fact, they were set apart before, you know, Isaac and Esau, before Jacob and Esau were born. The fact that they were set apart in Egypt. And he says here, okay, uh, he talks about the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he talks about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. And this is one of those passages, kind of like saying Esau I've hated, where we can read it and say, wow, see, God just hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh didn't have a say. You know, it just wasn't his lucky day. Um, but there's a couple of things we need to understand here that are really important. And this is one of these areas where I said we're going to kind of cover the big idea, but also zero in. Here's where we need to zero in a little bit. Paul's addressing, basically, God's history of choosing Israel. And he says, what if God wanted to show his wrath and make his power known? Paul's not debating here that God is totally in control, that God can do whatever he wants. If you're going to believe the Bible, you have to believe that God is totally sovereign. God is totally able to do whatever he wants. And if God wanted to say, you know what, I'm just going to divide the room in half, and half of you are going to heaven and half of you are going to hell, that's, he, that's within his power to do. The question is not what can God do, the question is what does God do? And what does God offer? And so he says, yeah, what if God wanted to do that when he's speaking about Pharaoh? And he's enduring the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And that word prepared is very important. Um, here's the deal, without going way too far off the deep end. In Greek, which is what the Bible, which is what the New Testament is written in, the word prepared is in the middle tense, which means the subject is the one doing the action. So here's really how it could read. The vessels of wrath who prepared themselves for destruction. Paul is addressing the fact that God is in control and that God does judge people who refuse him and that he does demonstrate grace to anyone who asks. But what he's doing is he's making a point here that basically in the example of Pharaoh, in the example of Esau, we get, this, we get to see people who had an opportunity to repent, had an opportunity to serve the Lord and just flaunted it. And they prepared themselves for destruction. And there's a point at which God says, you have chosen a path and I will let you continue on that path. And even Pharaoh, you know, if you go back to the book of Exodus, we just read through it. If you're reading through the Bible in a year, it says... The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. But it says that after multiple times of saying, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And so this idea here is Pharaoh prepared his heart for destruction. And so God is willing to make his power known. You know, God bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt, he wanted there to be a demonstration of his glory. And if God had, if Moses had come to Pharaoh and Pharaoh would have said, okay, you know what? I'm willing to accept that God is who he says he is. I think the children of Israel would have walked out and there would have been a display of God's glory that would have been incredible. But instead, Pharaoh prepared his heart for destruction. He said, nope, I'm not going to do it that way. I, don't, I, I basically dare your God to show me who he is. And so the Lord slowly but firmly said, okay, look, here's, here's a trouble. Now would you like to repent? No. Here's a trouble. Now would you like to repent? No. Here's the trouble. Now would you like to repent? No. He's given chance and chance and chance and chance. And finally the Lord says, okay, you have made a choice. Now we're going we're gonna to follow through. But God's in control, but he's still working within our ability to make a choice, our ability to choose. And this is where we've got to kind of come away from chapter 9 with. He's totally sovereign, but we still have an opportunity. And so as we're looking at what about the nation of Israel? What about Jewish people? God has totally chosen them. They are still his chosen people, but they still 
are responsible for their choosing. They're responsible to determine, are they going to try and be made righteous by what they do, or are they going to, be, are they going to accept the righteousness by faith? And so that's what he says in the end of the chapter. He says, the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. He's saying, look, when, the, when we got saved, this room here, it wasn't because we were awesome. Most of us were rather painfully aware of the fact that we weren't awesome, right? And so we weren't looking for righteousness. It wasn't, well, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm 98% of the way there. It was, no, I'm not there. And at this rate, uh, there's no point in trying, right? And so what he's, the idea is carrying out is basically we're attaining righteousness through faith. And the Jewish people have righteousness available to them, but it's still through faith. So chapter 9, Paul's addressing the past, saying, look, God chose them. God sovereignly chose them. He wants to demonstrate his grace and his power and his righteousness through the nation of Israel, through the Jewish people. But it's still their responsibility to accept that, okay? Chapter 10, here we go, same deal. We're going to read through the whole thing. Brethren, verse 1, Incidentally, if you have like a digital Bible or you want to know, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord, is over, same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So chapter 9, he's talking about Israel's past. In chapter 10, he's really parked in Israel's present. And really, in a very, in a very real sense, this has been Israel's present for 2,000 years now. So, he's kind of starting off. He says, you know, I, look, I love the Israelites. They've got a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
They've got all this, you know, they know things about God, but they don't have a knowledge of God. For they, verse 3, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He says, here's, here's my heart and my burden for the Jewish people, is they're pursuing righteousness. But how are they doing it? They're pursuing their own righteousness. They're trying to establish their own righteousness, and they're being ignorant of God's righteousness. If you try, and this is a reality that's true for any one of us, if you say, hey, you know what? I'm going to be righteous by the way that I determine, whatever you are, it won't be the righteousness of God. It, it will not. It will be in, in absolute ignorance of the righteousness of God. And so he says, look, Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. If a Jewish person wants to attain righteousness, the only appropriate solution is put your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the same end reality for every single one of us. He says Christ is the end of the law. This is important. We can sometimes have this idea that, you know, we've got the Old Testament, and it's sort of like trial run one or experiment A. And, and the Lord tried it for a couple thousand years, and the Jewish people just weren't getting it, and just wasn't working. And he said, okay, you know what? We're just, new plan, new game. Uh, I'm just going to send Jesus, and we're just going to kind of move in a new direction. That's not what happened. What happened was, from the fall of Adam, there's been a plan to demonstrate God's grace. And that grace has been available to any person who would call out for it, right? Even throughout the Old Testament, there are multiple accounts where a pagan person who was not Jewish by blood, who had really, in a past life, no interest in the Lord, obtained righteousness, not through the law, but through grace. You've got Rahab, you've got Ruth, you've got Naaman, you've got Nebuchadnezzar. And even the Jewish people who are counted as righteous aren't counted as righteous because they kept the law. David is you know, he's called the sweet psalmist of Israel and a man after God's own heart. It wasn't exactly because he kept his nose so clean, right? David is righteous because of grace. You're not righteous after you murder a man and take his wife and because of what you're doing. You're righteous apart from what you're doing. You're righteous because God is willing to offer grace. And so the Jewish people still need to understand the same way that all of us need to understand. Christ is the end of the law. Jesus said in Matthew 5, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. I'm not, I'm not changing the game or changing the rules. This is what they've all been pointing to. They've all been pointing to the law has never made a single person righteous. That's where Paul goes in Romans 1 through 5. The law has never made anybody righteous. All it can do is demonstrate that we are unrighteous. The law can point us to our need for Jesus. And so he goes on and he says, look, Moses writes in verse 5 about the righteousness which is of the law, quote, the man who does these things shall live by them. It's absolutely true. If you keep the law of God perfectly, if you do every single thing that God ever tells you and you never make a mistake, you're going to live. Man, you're going to be in so much righteousness, it's going to be great. There's just a slight catch. And that is that you're not going to keep the law. You're not going to walk in righteousness. You and me and everybody else is a sinner. We are incapable. But notice, if the Jewish people are trying to obtain their own righteousness, what's it about? There's the man who does these things. It's all about doing. 
right? Trying to obtain righteousness by any means other than grace is all about what can I do? And we talked about last week. That's one of the most frustrating points a person can ever find themselves, right? When I have to do something for God, that's so frustrating. But verse 8 but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's not really quite so much about what we're doing or how awesome we are, right? If you believe and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, you'll be saved. That's not about the law. That's not about your own righteousness. That's about... Are you willing to believe and accept? And he says for verse 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this is really important. There is nothing, there's no distinction. We all obtain salvation the same way. We're all going to be saved the same way. It's not that there's a Jewish way to be saved and a Gentile way to be saved. You're saved by believing in Jesus Christ, by receiving the gift of grace. Now, with that being said, we're going to get to chapter 11. Um, but before we do that, we're going to read chapter 10, verse 17. He says, So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. If you flip over back to chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Chapter 10, Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Chapter 5, he says, faith brings us peace, brings us grace, brings us hope of glory. So, I'd like to have peace. I'd like to have grace. I'd like to have a hope of glory. How is it going to come? It's going to come by faith. How does faith come? Faith comes by the word of God. It's a great point to pause as a church, as individuals, and say, look, the way you obtain righteousness is by letting the Spirit of God transform your heart. The way you know what the Spirit of God wants to do is by knowing the Word of God, right? The Word of God will never contradict the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God will never contradict the Word of God. If you want to know, you know, sometimes, yes, the Spirit of God will prompt your heart in a very specific way. It's never apart from the Word. It's always in conjunction with the Word. Sometimes the Lord will tell you, hey, go do this. Go speak to this person. Go be a part of this, you know, this moment in time, whatever. But the Word of God... Do you know what the will of God is for your life? Start with the word. 1 Thessalonians 5, you can read it and say, this is the will of God, right? And you can know with certainty what the will of God is. So faith, that the grace, the peace, the hope of glory is going to come by what? Being in the word of God. So the Jewish people, even to this day, there's a lot of emphasis on what the rabbis have written. There's a lot of, you know, good thoughts and, and ideas about how we should live out Judaism. There's very little discussion about the Word of God. Even, even today, Jewish people just aren't in the Word of God. Not even the Old Testament or the Torah. They like reading books about it, right? And that's why Paul says they've got their own righteousness. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. If you're apart from the Word of God, you will be striving after something, but it won't be the righteousness of God. And so chapter 11, and we're going to read it, and we are... We're making relatively decent time. Okay, here we go. I say then, chapter 11, verse 1, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. 
For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. And just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall and to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Okay, so we said chapter 9 is all about Israel's past election, the fact that God chose them. Chapter 10 is about the fact that Israel, by and large, has rejected Jesus Christ. By and large, the Jewish people are still trying to be righteous by their own works, and it's still not working. And chapter 11 is about their future 
restoration. And so Paul's making a point, and again, Paul loves to do this in Romans. He makes a point and says, okay, you're probably thinking this. Let me clarify. You're wrong. Uh, so he starts off. I say then, has God cast away his people? Because he just got done telling us, hey, there's neither Jew nor Greek in the kingdom of heaven. We're all saved by the, by the grace of God, right? And hey, you know, faith comes by hearing, and, and it's all about if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. So does that mean that God has replaced Israel? Because does that mean that, you know what? The Old Testament, their system, the fact that God chose them, it's all just irrelevant at this point. No, it's not. Now, what Paul's going to explain here is, yes, salvation is, there's one way to be saved, right? But God still has a very, as a special plan for the nation of Israel. And God still is going to keep his promise to Rebekah that there are two nations in your womb and the younger one is going to be served by the older one. His promise to Abraham that in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the promises in the major prophets and the minor prophets, God's going to keep those all. And that matters. That's super important as Christians that we believe that because here's why. If those promises have been nullified, or if those promises have been replaced, now we just like stepped in and we're taking it over from here and really the church is the new Israel and, and all that, then here's what that means. That means God didn't keep his promise the first time. And if he didn't keep his promise the first time because the Jewish people didn't respond the right way, then what's our assurance that he'll keep his promise this time? Because we don't always respond the right way. We don't always respond to what God has done. We don't always walk in righteousness. So if God can deliver a promise and then say, well, you know, I meant it, but I didn't anticipate just how much of a loser you could be. And then it's entirely possible that he could look at any of us and say, you know, I meant it, but you guys are just losers. And so it's important that we understand that the promises of God are not going to be walked back by the coming of Jesus Christ. They're going to be more completely fulfilled. Okay? So he says, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Of course not. And Paul says, and he's going to give us examples. He says, for I also am an Israelite. Right? Most significant church father in all of history. The most read human being, uh, except for maybe Moses. The Apostle Paul. A Jewish man. He says, Is, did God just like say he's done with Israel? Well, he's like, um, I'm Israelite, so uh, No. And then he goes on, he gives us the example of Elijah. Elijah, in the time of his ministry, seriously thought that he was the last person serving the Lord in his nation. He said, God, I'm the last one, so let's just, you know, make it a, a clean slate, just kill me too, and then you can go from there. And God says, I've reserved 7,000 in Israel who haven't yet bowed the knee to the pagan idol. Elijah says, I'm the last one, and God says, no, there's 7,000 more. And so Paul says, look, there's a remnant. It may not be a majority, but there's a remnant. There's a remnant of Israelites today who believe in Jesus Christ. And they're still actively working and trying to encourage other Jewish people to believe in the Lord. They're trying to you know, draw people to Jesus Christ. God isn't done with them. He's using them. There's a remnant. And he says, um, kind of 5 through 13. No, sorry. Wrong spot in the notes. That's awkward. Um, he says, there's, you know, chapter 11, sorry, verse, chapter 11, verse 11. He says, they've stumbled. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. He says, look, here's the deal. 
Israel rejected the gospel, by and large. And as a result of that, what happened? The gospel went to the Gentiles. Okay? Paul tried to reach the Jewish people. And finally said, okay, this is, you know what, fine. I'm going to go spread the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he's saying, look, Israel's rejection brought about salvation to the Gentiles. We are here tonight because Jewish people didn't want to listen. Paul says, think about that for a second. Okay? Israel's denying Jesus Christ brought us tonight to this point where we're believing in Jesus Christ. He says, now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Paul says, think about this. God has not cast them away. He hasn't replaced them. There's a fullness coming for the Jewish people. And he says, think about if their rejection brought this much glory. How many Christians are in, on the earth today who aren't Jewish? If, if the rejection by Israel brought that much glory, what happens when the nation of Israel comes to the Lord in fullness? Right? And this is the idea um, in the book of Acts when Stephen is on trial before they stone him. He, says, he gives this great sermon. He basically says, you guys always miss it the first time. Okay? He says, look, Joseph is in Egypt. You, the brothers come. Don't recognize them. They come back a second time. They figure it out. He says, Moses is supposed to deliver the people. He goes out to try and help them the first time. It doesn't work. Forty years later, they say, yeah, we recognize you as the leader. He says, Jesus came the first time. You didn't recognize him. Guess what? He's coming again, and you're going to recognize him. And that's what's going to come. So Paul here, is, he's describing, I think, um, this isn't just hyperbole. This isn't just a great metaphor. He's describing, I think, the literal history that's coming. In the book of Revelation, there's 144,000 Jewish witnesses who are going to be sharing the gospel. Think about that for a second. If the, you know, the, the gospel has gone out, really, in spite of a lot of opposition from the Jewish people over the years. What happens when the Jewish people are now the greatest evangelists on earth? What happens is you have what John describes in the book of Revelation. He says, I saw a multitude of people who couldn't be counted. Right? There's glory coming by the Jewish people's acceptance of Jesus Christ. It's, there's, a, there's a time of awakening and revival that's going to come. And he says, okay, so then he goes on, kind of 16 through 24, he basically says, yes, you've been grafted in. You're a recipient of, a, of the promises. You're allowed to partake in the blessings, but that never gives us room to have an air of superiority towards Jewish people. Right? Christianity, there's, no, there's really no, there's no such thing as a biblical Christian who also has a trace of anti-Semitism in, the, in their thinking. It's, just, it's not. They are completely opposite. You can't have it. Because if you're going to be a biblical Christian, you have to say, okay, God has made promises to his people and he's going to keep them. And because I'm accepting the righteousness of God by faith, I get to partake in some of these blessings. But that doesn't make me an awesome Christian. This has nothing to do, it still has nothing to do with what did I do or how good am I. It still has everything to do with what has God done. And so he says there's no room for the church to have this idea that, well, we've replaced Israel. And all those promises for Israel, well, they apply to us now, right? Because we're so awesome and the Israelites are so lame. No, 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 no. He says, look, you're in the tree. You're in the family tree. That's awesome. But just don't forget, you're grafted in. You, sorry. You didn't belong. You weren't invited. You, you, by rights, you don't belong at this party. But guess what? God brought you in and said, yeah, 
Let's graft them in. So there's no place for superiority in the mind of a Christian. He goes on in uh, verse, well, I'm trying to say where to pick it up. Yeah. So verse 28, he says, Concerning the gospel, their enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. He's saying, look, right now, yes, overall, there are a lot of Jewish people who do not like the gospel. They do not like Christianity. But they're still beloved for the sake of the fathers. There's still promises of God that apply to them. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God has called the nation of Israel to be his people. He has given them specific gifts as part of that. And guess what? You can't take them back. You're not going to take them away. You're not going to undo them. Nobody can, right? Adolf Hitler could not undo the plan that God had. The Russian czars could not undo the plan that God had. You look at just the waves of anti-Semitism that have gone throughout history, nobody can do it. Nobody can ever successfully get rid of the Jewish people. Why? Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God has established them and said, whatever comes against you, I've got a plan. And because of that, we have confidence as Christians to say, look at God's faithfulness to these people. Look at his faithfulness. And now let's look at the promises he's made to us. Right? And the promises to the Jewish people have nothing to do with their merit. They're, you know, you look at the history of the Jewish people, they're not really famous for just like full-fledged devotion to the Lord. But he made a promise, and he's faithful to it. Look at our lives today. We are still kind of lacking in uh, perfection. You know, you may have noticed. Uh, but the promises of God still stand. When Jesus said, if you ask for the Holy Spirit, the Father will give it. That stands. That's a promise, right? He says, my word endures forever. I will exalt my word above my name. He says, until, you know, um, basically heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will stand. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There are promises for us, and we can hold on to them. And this is why it's really important. This is why Romans 9, 10, and 11 can be a little bit of work to go through sometimes, but they're important. Because we need to get through this to understand, look, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He made promises to the nation of Israel that he's going to keep. He has made promises to us that he's going to keep. When we talk about, in Romans 5, justification by faith. When we talk about the fact that he's offering us grace, what is that? It's God's riches at Christ's expense. He's offering us the power of his Holy Spirit. And the righteousness that comes with that, those are promises that stand. They have nothing to do with how worthy we are or how qualified we are. They have everything to do with how faithful is God. And we look at the faithfulness of God towards the Israelites, towards the Jewish people, and we say, okay, the word of the Lord stands. And so it matters. Our approach to what do we do, you know, has God cast away Israel? Certainly not. Paul says, I've got a burden for these people. I want to see them come to know. And along, so, and then he goes on, verse 33. And he we're, we're wrapping up. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid him. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. That's a great way to wrap up. How do you address the law. How do we address righteousness? Is there a different kind of righteousness? 
Is, do the Jewish people have some sort of uh, you know, special way to get to God? No, they do have a special place in the heart of God. He's got a special plan for them. Um, but the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. I love this. At the end of this, you know, we've talked about God chose Israel. Why? Because he chose them. Because he had a plan. He looked at the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom and said, I want to I channel my grace through a family line in a special way through these people. And grace is still available to any other person who will call, but I've still, I've, I want to do something special here. And Paul says, basically, there's a depth there that I don't know. For of him and through him and to him are all things. So basically, here's the deal. God's got a plan. And God's in control. And sometimes you can, you can read Romans 9, 10, 11. You can get all like, okay, well, wait a second. What about Pharaoh and Esau? And, and oh my gosh, and you know, we're, we're grafted in, but we can be grafted out and all these. And, you, and you, can, you can zero in on these little details. But what's the big picture? God's got a plan. God's in control. God has been faithful to keep his promise to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people. He's gonna be faithful to keep his promises to us. And now with that, Go back and consider Romans 1 through 8. Think about the number of promises we've looked at in the last month, right? The number of times God has said, I will do this, or you will receive this, you can obtain this, and it's because of what he has done, not because of what we've done. All those promises are sure. We anchor on to them because we can look at what's he done with the Jewish people, right? One of, I love... In the Old Testament, God, as he's laying out the law, he says, look, here's the deal. If somebody comes to you and says, I'm a prophet, and I've got a word from the Lord, he says, they need to be able to give you a short-term prophecy. Because any person in this room could stand up and tell you what's going to happen in a thousand years. And none of us are going to be around to prove them wrong. But if I'm going to stand up and tell you what's going to happen in a thousand years, I better be able to tell you what's going to happen in the next ten minutes. And the, the short-term will validate the long-term. And the scripture holds itself to that same standard. God doesn't just ask us to hope that he's telling the truth. He says, no, no, look, I'm telling the truth, and here's the evidence. And that's why we have fulfilled prophecy. It's such a great thing. But that's why also we have the history of God's faithfulness towards Israel. So we look at the past. That's why we love the Old Testament. There's so much richness there. We're going to get into 1 Corinthians in just a couple weeks. And Paul's going to say, look, the things that happen to Israel, they're pictures for us. We're supposed to learn from them. There is so much there. But one of the most central things is we look at that and we say, okay, God is in control. God's got a plan. God will be faithful. God is, you know, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That is why we celebrate grace and that's why we appreciate and are thankful for the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. They still need Jesus Christ, absolutely, right? But we still love them dearly because God's got a plan and God's in control. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would go deep in our hearts, that we'd be transformed by it. God, we want to uh, see it come alive in our hearts in fresh ways. So have your way with us. Go before us. I pray that you would just guide us and lead us. We want to walk in your righteousness. We thank you that, that you're offering it to us, not based on what we do. And so I, I just pray that we would accept, that we would confess and believe that you are who you say you are. You are Jesus Christ. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're the King. You're the Savior. And we are thankful for it. 
And it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.